and welcome to Cycling Talk with me, Georgia Mahoney. Today, I'm joined by Ineos Grenadiers rider, Luke Rowe. I want to say thank you to Luke for speaking to me today. He spoke to me from his hotel room in between races and I really appreciate him making the time to chat. Thank you for joining me today, Luke. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. What was your first memory of being on a bike? Oh, now you're asking. I think, um, so I'm from Cardiff, so I started my, well, I rode all my life really, but uh, I guess you got to go back to when I was really young, was probably, we bought two tandems, so I would ride the tandem with my father and my brother would ride the tandem with my mother. Just probably going back to when I was maybe eight years old. Um, and it was just a nice way to get out the four of us and you know with other people and stuff we were too young to go out on the road ourselves mm-hmm. so that was a safe option and um, yeah a lot of fun memories so probably I was eight years old so 20 odd years ago now time flies. <laughs> what was your first bike you remember being really excited about? My first bike I, that I can my first prop bike because my dad would always um kind of beg, borrow and steal and kind of put these bikes together from odd bits of Bob. Yeah, me and my brother both got purple Peugeots and, you know, you always want to be... I was one of the younger sibling. Do you have an old brother or sister? Uh, I have an older brother. Well, there you are. You, you're, you're in the same boat as me then. I have an older brother as well. And you always want to be a little bit like them, don't you? You don't want to admit it, but you do really. Um, so because we both had the same bikes, both had these purple Peugeots. I was pretty happy to be, um, yeah, have a bike similar to my brother. What sort of riding were you doing when you first started out? For me, from the day I started out till the current day, um, nothing's really changed in terms of the way I, I view the sport and prioritize my bike riding and that's purely pleasure. Um, and the day that changes, is probably the day I retire, and it might sound it you know it sounds strange when you're a professional athlete and do this as a job and you take it very seriously. But for me, the most important thing is is to have fun and, and enjoy it, and, and nothing's changed. So when I was a a whippersnapper, it was just a case of going out with a couple of friends, going to the calf, a couple of bacon sarnies, and just enjoying people's companies, enjoying the outdoors enjoying the freedom of the sport, enjoying exploring. Like when you're young, you don't really know where you're going. Every road is new. Every corner's got a new story and something to look forward to. And in that aspect, nothing's really changed. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people get too wrapped up in, um, you know, the science behind cycling and bike riding. But for me, it's just the simple joy of going out, meeting a couple of mates, doing a few hours, stopping at the car from riding home. And I think that's, you know, one of the purest forms of, of cycling in the old school club run style. And that was what I did back then. And that's, you know, now I've got to do a few specifics with the training and stuff, but essentially, you know, the, the majority of it is, is pretty similar to this day. Mm, yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. What, what do you have when you stop at the calf then? Um, I, I always like a chocolate brownie. I think they're always really nice. <laughs> Good shout. Good shout. Never change. <laughs> How old were you when you first joined Mandy Flyers? I reckon I was about 10 years old. And it was, um, look back on that with very, very fond memories. And it was just a great group of young kids. And there was no pressure there was no um of course naturally when you go to a race you want to do the best you can and you want to um you know try and win of course that's that's natural with any athlete but again going back to almost the previous question the the fundamental thing was was to have fun and you know if we had a race that was 100 miles away instead of driving individually we'd all get a minivan and, and just go up together and it was we'd build the weekend around what was potentially only a half an hour race and we'd stay the night in um, B&B or a youth hostel and, and make a weekend of it. And yeah, I look back at them days with Mainly Flyer, that was kind of real grassroots cycling, you know, 
back to basics and we just had a great group of of kids and looking back you know you take it for granted at the time but the adults who supported all that and the coaches and, and the parents you know gave 100% and sacrificed their weekends to so we could achieve our our dreams um so yeah I'd say I was around 10 years old and I, I stayed there for maybe five six years good times when did you first realize that you were a good rider um do you know what I never it's a good question actually um I think when I was in the junior ranks probably is when I realistically thought maybe I can make something of this but it, it always felt like a dream too far away to to be realistically achievable it always did feel like a dream that would potentially never become a reality it was just these you'd see these races on tv you'd see these you know there wasn't a huge amount of british riders as professional back then there was maybe two or three in the top ranks of of, of world cycling um now there's 20 30 yeah so probably when i was junior but even then it was i i knew i was you know one of the top i don't know five ten in the country i was i was never anything special i never i never you know went to races and just rode away or I never you know had a abundance of wins i was always i had to always work hard for everything i got really i never you know some kids would just turn up and win junior races and under 23 races and rack up a lot of wins throughout the year but for me it was always it was always a bit of a grind really I never was like a big champion or anything it was just um, a slow steady progression this led me to this day and uh, but I'd say yeah realistically junior is when I really thought there is at least a chance that I can can make something of this yeah do you remember your first race I don't um first race I don't remember my first race but I remember racing that we did a lot back back to the mainly flyers was um it was the mainly mini league and it was every Thursday night I think down at mainly track racing and that was probably as far back as I can remember and again that was just yeah I think we did four or five races a night just um yeah bit of fun maybe I'd maybe I'd win one maybe I'd yeah, have a, have, a, have a bit of fun. Essentially, going back to it, it was, yeah, I look back on that with fond memories. And it was, main, main D track was around four mile, three mile from my house. So I'd ride down, do the three, four races and ride ride back home with my, with my dad or my mum or my brother. Sometimes we'd ride down there and back, the four of us. And yeah, it was, just, it was just during the summer, obviously, because it was an outdoor track. Yeah. Cardiff isn't best known for us, uh, well, the UK in general, you know what it's like, the winters. So it was uh, purely a summer, you know, I think it was 10 weeks during the summer. Mm. Um, that's probably as far back as I can really remember. I'm not sure if, my, if it was, was actually my first race, but that's probably as far back as I can I can remember. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you raced nationally? Nationally? Not really. I can't, I, I can't pinpoint a race. I remember there was... Um, Hillenden and Eastway were, were two of the circuits that we raced a lot on and Milton Keynes bowl. Mm. And it was always a big deal when you'd cross the bridge, uh, the seven bridge going into enemy territory, so to speak, we'd always, um, it always, you know, you'd travel around to different races, but when you cross that bridge, you knew it was game time and you knew you were, you know, going to race a lot of new different riders. Mm. There was obviously a lot of racing locally, but you know, when you crossed that bridge and went to one of them circuits, it was, uh, yeah, stepping up to the big stage, it kind of felt like. Um, so, I, to be honest, I, at quite a young age, I was racing all around the country. You know, certainly when I was 10, 12, I was, yeah, going to all corners of, of, uh, of the country. Not, not really racing abroad, but um, certainly across, across the UK, I was racing at 10, 12. Yeah. Did you ever do track riding when you were younger? Yeah, I did. Um, when I was younger, and it's probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give to any um, aspiring cyclist, male or female, was would be to to just try everything. And that's that's what I did. I did 
road, track, mountain bike, cyclocross. I even did, I even went to the national championships for speedway one year, um, you know, around the tiny little circuits. Um, and that's why, you know, before we started recording, why I asked you what disciplines you do and you said pretty much you do, you do them all. And that's, that's great to hear. So what, 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 remind me, what do you do? Road, track, mountain bike, cyclocross. Um, I only do road, mountain bike and cyclocross, but I have been to one of those tryout sessions that they do at the Newport Velodrome, and I think that was really fun. Ah, okay. So there you go. You do three different disciplines, dip your toe in the water of a fourth. That's, that's brilliant. But the only thing is the more disciplines you do, the more, the more bikes your parents got to buy you. So <laughs> it gets pricey then, doesn't it? Yeah. But Christmas is coming up, so maybe, maybe it's time for a track bike, eh? <laughs> what, <laughs> but about racing internationally did you do any of that when you were younger yeah i went to um i think the first real big one was oh let me think of the name of it um it was in holland it was a stage race uh it's it's, it's skipped my mind but it was a uh, like a five six day stage race in holland um me Pete, I went. I came over with uh, Pete Kenner, who used to ride uh, ride professionally. He retired a year or two ago, but I went across with him and my brother and a couple of other boys. Uh, we went across in a camper van, and we we all camped out. and I, that, that and that was my first bad crash as well. Um, so that was my first big race internationally, and my first big crash. I remember I coming around this left hand corner. They were all commesses and criteriums and little time trials. And I come around this left-hander, completely overcooked it. I thought I was, um, yeah, I don't know what I thought it was. I thought it was Valentino Rossi. And I come around this left-hand corner and I, I just wiped out. And that was my first real nasty crash. Felt sorry for myself. All my, my hip was ripped up. And uh, yeah, so my first international race and my first proper proper crash all in, all in one weekend. <laughs> Were you on the GB programme? I was, yeah. Um, I was on the GB program pretty much right the way through my career, really, um, from under 16 to junior to under 23. I was on the GB program the whole time, and it was it was brilliant. I think it, it's it's a route that led me to being a professional cyclist, and it you know everything was in place as long as you kept you know applying yourself, giving 100 percent. You know, the races were there. We had a great calendar. Um, we had all the quick equipment and support you needed. But at the same time, that being said, it's not the only route. And I'd encourage anyone who isn't on the GB program mm. to get your head down. And, and you can still do what you want to do. It's one of many routes. I, th I think it's one of the best routes. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, there's been a lot of riders now who are professional cyclists, at the top of the game who, who didn't get onto the GB program, who were maybe missed along the way. Um, like funnily enough, like if you look at, do you know Simon and Adam Yates? Do you know them boys? Yeah. The twins. So Simon was on the Academy. He got selected. Adam wasn't on the Academy. He didn't get selected. And so I was on the Academy with um, my, my final year on the Academy was his first year. So I was on the Academy with Simon and Adam didn't even get selected for the academy. So that kind of goes to show that, you know, there's many different routes and, and both ways can be successful. Oh, I had no idea about that. That's really strange. <laughs> Interesting one, that, isn't it? So Adam Yates didn't even get selected for the, for the under-23 um, programme. His brother did. And then Adam went to race in France, I believe, for, uh, for, uh, for an amateur team in France. And uh, and then they both signed for Mitchelton Scott. Uh, it was Green, I think it was Green Edge at the time. Um, both signed at the same time, so they both did the same amount of years of, as amateur, just through different routes. And now that I still don't know which one's which, I still don't know who's achieved what, but they both achieved a lot. <laughs> Were you away from home a lot? Yeah, I was. Yeah, um, and and that's one thing that still hasn't changed is um, life out of a suitcase. I'm in a hotel room as I speak to you now. Um, when I was under 23, going back to the academy, uh, all my friends are packing their bags for uni and I was packing my bags to go to the academy. And it was, um, we spent the winter in Manchester and the summer in Italy, in Tuscany. And it was, yeah, pretty much 
well, it's got to be 300 days a year away from home, maybe more. And uh, yeah, that was that was a big shock. And when you think you're, well, how old was I? 17, 18, and and that's it. You know, you're you're moving out, and and I never moved back home really. Um, yeah. You know, once I turned professional, I bought my own place, and I never, I never really moved back home. So since since I was 17, it was um, pack your bags and off you go, and. That that that's hard to leave it. You know, looking back now, I was I was just a kid, really. You know, and um, but certainly it, you know, it it taught me a lot. You know, how to look after yourself, how to fend for yourself, how to how to cook, how to wash, all that stuff. So um, no, it's it's a long a lot of time away from home, and it's similar now. I'd I'd say now it's probably um, probably half a year away from home, certainly. So six six months home, six months away. If you incorporate training camps and all the racing you do, so you know it sets you in good stead for your professional career and makes you realise how much time you're on the road away from family and friends. Yeah, what sort of training were you doing when you first started out compared to now? Um, I think the sport. So this is my twelve, thirteen, fourteen. This is my ninth year as professional. And I think a lot has changed in them nine years. Uh, the sport has got a lot more uh, professional, really, mm. with with the training, with the way you know the, the the new professionals approach it. They there's no room for not that I did, but there's no room for applying yourself ninety percent anymore. And there's mm. you know everyone is a hundred percent committed. All the teams are dialed in. Everything's. Um, you know, looked at with, with numbers and in depth Yeah. where back then probably it was a bit more relaxed and, uh, you know, everyone still worked hard, but I think there's a lot more, you know, um, sports scientist and, and that type of approach to it, which mm-hmm. uh, for me personally, I, I preferred it how it was before a bit more, um, a bit more relaxed, but you know, you've got to adapt with the sport and you've got to embrace it. So I'd say back then it was probably more just, general riding in a group more club run style maybe some guys would do efforts but it would be kind of you know go up a climb and get a sweat on uh, as opposed to now it's specific numbers and, and wattage and heart rates and and length of climbs so i'd say i probably preferred it a little bit how it was back then but like i said you've got to uh, you've got to adapt to how it is now yeah do you remember the first time you rode for wales Oh, I think the first time I do. First time I rode for Wales was Kerry Youth Tour, which was a youth race, uh, and I was probably. Well, you asked me what my first international race was. It was probably this one, actually. If you count Ireland as international, I'm not sure. Uh, I was probably thirteen or fourteen, and we raced Kerry Youth Tour, which was uh, over in Kerry in Ireland. And that was my first time representing Wales. And I remember we got a we got a jersey, raced in the jersey, and then we had to give the jersey back, which broke my heart. But um, times were tough, so I had to give the jersey back, which broke my heart. But that was the first time, yeah. How did it feel representing your country? Yeah, it's it's something that still excites me to this day, representing Wales, which you only get to do once every four years at the Commonwealth Games, or GB, which is you know, an opportunity that if you're selected, you can do every year through the Worlds and, and European Championships and once every four years, the Olympics, obviously. Um, and it's something that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a patriotic, proud Welshman and a proud, proud Brit. So anytime I pull that jersey off on, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's different. You know, you pull, you, you ride for your trade team day in, day out. It's what you're training, it's what you're racing. Mm. And I'm proud to represent you know, and, and be part of the team in the Oscar and Ideas, but to represent your country, there's something special about that. And um, yeah, I think I'm as proud now as I was then to any chance I get to represent my country, I'll always, always be there. And um, that's, you know, unless the team stop, stop me doing it, which they haven't to this day, but um, no, it's something that's high on my, my list to always be there and represent Wales or GB at, any possibility I think um, it's something that can never be taken for granted mm, yeah 
So you said you obviously ride for Ineos and you've ridden for them or Sky for quite a few years now. How did that happen? So actually, I'll give you a bit of inside knowledge here. So it was 2000 and... So my first year of professional was 2012. And I, I agreed the contract with what was formerly uh, Team Sky halfway through to through 2011 i signed the contract mm. and it was halfway through 2010 where i got an offer off another professional cycling team and i was umming and ah in and i thought you know what it's not i wanted to ride for sky because it was a british team it had all my mates in it it mm. seemed like the perfect fit for me but they didn't offer me a contract in 2010 and another team did and i said you know what I've got to take this other team because I was all I've wanted for the past three, four years mm. is a professional contract. I've been offered one. It's not off the dream team I wanted, but I got to take it. And I agreed to that contract, but didn't sign the paperwork. And Shane Sutton called me and he said, listen, Luke, don't sign that contract next year. We'll hundred percent give you a contract. So I agreed to that. So I could have turned professional one year earlier, but it wasn't for the, for the team I wanted to. So I, I got a kind of pre, pre-contract, if you like. So I had to wait one extra year um, to sign for Team Sky in 2012. So I had to be a bit patient, which was, was hard to do because when you chase that dream of becoming a professional and signing a contract, and then you get one put in, you know, put in front of you mm. and you don't sign it and wait another year. It's hard to do, but um, looking back, it's probably for the best. I wasn't, I probably wasn't quite ready to make that jump physically. Um, wasn't quite good enough. So that extra year is under 23 set me in good stead. So looking back, it was a good decision, but at the time it was a tough one. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I didn't realize that that was how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know what going, Going further into it, um, so so now you have a, I have an agent, and he, he rep, you know when your contract runs out, he'll go out and see which teams are interested and try and get you the most money as possible. And then, but at the time, I didn't have an agent, and teams the team Sky in two that halfway through 2011 offered me a contract. I said, yeah, perfect, I'll sign it. I went in. Couple of weeks later, signed the contract, left the office, and um, I went. I told my parents that yeah, I signed a contract. And we're talking, and they said, "Oh, so what's what's your salary? How much are you getting paid?" And I said, "Do you know what? I didn't even check. I don't know. I was that excited to sign a contract, and it's crazy looking back not to even negotiate and get the most you could. But I didn't even ask what the figure was. Didn't even look at the piece of paper. I just signed the paper and ran out." Skip, skipped out the room, happy as Larry. But uh, yeah, now, now you have a, an agent representing you and he'll go out, see what teams are interested and, uh, and negotiate the best, the best fee possible for you. What's your role on the team currently? Um, just try and keep up morale. Just, uh, just have a bit of fun with the boys. <laughs> have a laugh. Um, and then on the bike is just... You know, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a winner. That's that's something I learned in the first few years of my career, and it was a decision that I made, a conscious decision I made to, you know, looked in the mirror and I thought, you know, you've done a few years professional now, you've tried to win races, not quite good enough to win races, so I had to accept that, mm. and say, right, okay, so how am I going to make a career of this? How am I going to ride professionally for ten, fifteen years? So I said, okay, well, if I can't win races, then I've got to be the best support rider possible. I'm going to try and make myself one of the best support riders in the world and and be what's known as a domestique. And whatever race, any terrain, I want to be able to support the leader on the day and be, be a bonus for the team. And that's what I've kind of tried to do for the last six, eight years really is just be reliable for the team and, and just be a, be a helper and whatever the terrain unless it's the really big mountains I feel like I can 
I can I can do that role and just be reliable. I think is the the key word. And if if you can be day in day out, month in month out, year in year out, you know, constantly at a, a good level, and where the team can put you in any given race and say, okay, Luke can do a a decent job of that race. That was that was what I tried to achieve, and that's what I feel I have. So just um, yeah, just uh, what's known as a domestique, which I believe, don't quote me on this. I think I think it translates directly to helper. So it's, it basically means helper. Yeah. I think it's really good that there are so many roles in a team. Yeah, it's it's, it's strange because you have you have thirty riders, and it's almost like each rider brings a different dynamic to a team and a different skill set. Um, and then there's different riders, different nationalities, different languages, and it's you've got all these different aspects, and you've got to put them all together and make it work. And it's it's tough, you know. And when people leave teams, change teams, join a team, and straight away you've got to get them feeling comfortable, you know, not that they're on the outside of the group. And and I think how how everyone gets on on and off the bike is important. I think a team. You know, a group of friends will perform a lot better than a group of colleagues or teammates. So, you know, once you get that bond and that relationship, I think, you know, as a team, you can step up the level. So it's, yeah, a lot goes into it. So it's, it's tough to get right. Yeah. Obviously, Ineos is so sort of multicultural. How is, like, the language barrier? Well, I think the, well, I don't think that the the language is clear. It's it, We're a British team and, and the, the spoken language is English. But of course, when a new rider joins, you know, we've got quite a few Colombians on our team. We've got Ecuadorians, Spanish, Italians. Like you say, we're a very multicultural team. And of course, when someone joins the team, they're, they're, like, they're not going to pick up the language straight away. They might spend a bit of the winter studying. But essentially, when they first come, you know, they're not going to speak perfect English. And you've got to be patient and, and try and, help them along the way rather than kind of leave them isolated. You've got to kind of bring them into the group and, you know, put, put an arm around them, you know, and kind of bring them into the group. And, um, and, and that's, that's really important, you know, relating to the question before about, you know, making a team work with different nationalities and cultures. I think the cult, the cultures massively different as well, you know, how people live day to day and, so I think, you know, as once someone's been in the team for six months, 12 months, they pick up the language pretty well and it, it becomes less of a problem. But, you know, when someone first joins the team, they can, they can be a language barrier. And I think that's where they've got to, they've got to put the time in themselves to learn the language. And then at the same time, it's upon us to, to make sure they're not feeling left out and they're, they're part of the team. Yeah, definitely. How do you deal with the pressure of being in such a big team? Um, it's, it's such a cliche to say, but it's, it's so true that you can only do your best. And it sounds like something you'd say to a kid in a playground, but it's so true. So if it, you know, there's pressure to go and win these big races, to go to the Tour de France and, and compete for the win. But if you've got eight guys on the start line and you've got, you've done everything right, you've turned up, you're prepared, you're fit, you're healthy you've got the best staff, you've got the best bikes, you're ready to go and you're on the start line and you go out there and you do your best. Every day for 21 days, you do your best and what, and what the end result is, is the end result. And I think if you can, any race, if you finish the race and you can go on the bus, look around each person in the eye and say, you know what, each and every one of us gave 100% today. If you win the race, I'll come 100th. What, there's nothing you can do. If, if everyone buys in, if everyone commits, um, everyone gives 100%, then you can hold your head high. So in that sense, in terms of pressure, you know, I don't really feel the pressure. I don't really get nervous because I feel confident in myself that I'm going to go out and I give absolutely everything every day and, and what will be will be. Um, let, let, yeah, let, let, the, let the road decide. Is it easier to be friends with teammates or with other people in the peloton? Definitely teammates. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a, you know, I think the teammates see you, 
see you a lot more, spend a lot more time with you, you know, dinner time, lunch time, um, training camps. And they, they see you as a, a person and as a bike rider. They see, they see both sides of you. They see the, the human side of you and then they see how you race and perform as an athlete as well. Whereas other riders in the peloton, they only see the one side of you and that's the, the bike racer. That's the athlete. They don't know you as a person. They don't, you don't really spend time with them really. Um, so, so they don't really, you know, I don't really know many other riders. I, there's a few who, you know, ex teammates or people who I, from other teams who I train with from time to time, but in general, you know, I don't really know many other bike riders as people. So it's definitely a lot easier to be, you know, a lot of my, best mates you know not, not just in the cycling bubble but you know generally speaking a teammates um so it's definitely a lot easier to get on with your teammates than than the rest of the peloton yeah so you're known for being a strong rider in the crosswinds do you look forward to days like that um i think yeah it's an area where i can um yeah it's, it's one of the areas where I am quite good at and I am quite reliable. Um, at the same time, it's, it can sometimes in them situations be a, be a lottery. If you get caught out in the wrong position, wrong time, it's a real, you know, in them crosswind days, nowadays everybody knows when it's coming, where it's going to be, where the split in the peloton could happen. So it's, um, and you can get caught out and get at the wrong side of the split through really no fault of your own, just a bit of, bad luck so there's there's always that on your mind that you know it can all go go wrong very quickly and there's often you know crashes in those situations so you know it is a bit um nerve-wracking going into them situations but i think you know like i said before you can only do your best and going into them situations i'm confident um i'll be there or thereabouts towards the front right place right time and then you know i think you've got to have the horsepower to back that up and um you know, in the wind, you you know, you fan across the road and, and make an echelon and you kind of roll through and it's it's hard, intense style of racing. So physically, I feel confident that I can do that. And, um, and, and then the skill set, you know, normally means you can be in the right place at the right time. Mm. I know you competed in Paris-Roubaix before with your best result being eighth. This year is much later in the calendar. Does that excite you or make you nervous? Uh, honestly, it makes me nervous. And actually thinking forward is, is quite, um, like I said before, I don't really get nervous or um, anxious before a race, but actually that's, that's on the mind a little bit because it's late on in the year. You know, it's in, um, like it's, the, the weather can be pretty bad here this time of year. And a wet Roubaix is something that I'd happily do my whole career and never experience because it's um, it's a dangerous, um, scary race in the dry, and to add the add rain to the equation just takes it to a whole new level. And it's um, yeah. yeah, you're playing the lottery. It's not you're on the start line thinking it's not if I crash, it's it's when I crash and how many times and how bad. So it's. Yeah, probably in my, in my, I've never been nervous for a race in my career, actually. I don't think so. But looking forward to that, if it's a wet Roubaix, I think I'd, I'd be I'd be pretty nervous there. And that's, I've got no shame in admitting that. I think it's, um, yeah, it's going to, if it is a wet Roubaix, it's going to be, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a scary day out. But, it, you know, I think when the time comes around, if it is, if that is the case, then you've got to accept it kind of roll up your sleeves and get on with it. But that's, that's a, it's a scary thought of what Ruby. Yeah. I actually heard you talking to Grant Thomas about it when I was listening to your podcast this morning. Oh, okay. You listen to ours, do you? Yeah. I really like it. I think it's really good. Oh, good. I'll, I'll, well, I'll have to tone down the swearing a bit then. I didn't realize <laughs> we had younger listeners. Sorry about that. I'm going to, I'm going to openly apologize. <laughs> I tried to be very polite on this one. <laughs> no it's all right it's, <laughs> I think it's really great that it's so conversational yeah we just try and keep it relaxed we don't really um edit much there's sometimes where it probably sounds a little bit amateur but we just kind of let it roll like we are 
Yeah. I know you've suffered from injuries, including a broken leg. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so I was on um, my brother's stag do. It was post Tour de France 2017, I think. And we went whitewater rafting. Uh, jumped into uh, some water. A few of us did. I jumped into a shallow patch and broke my leg in. They stopped counting. Broke my leg into 20, 30 places, all the metatarsals. It was, oh. it was a big mess. And um, yeah, that was probably the, definitely the low point of my career. It was, I haven't had many injuries. I've been fortunate from that point of view. And just being on the sidelines with all, doing all the rehab and w watching racing was the hardest thing. You know, races that you were scheduled to race in or races that you knew you could potentially have performed in and having to watch them on TV was, was hard. Um, but it also gave me a bit of a reality check, I guess. I, I wouldn't say I took it for, for granted, but perhaps I didn't realize how lucky I was in joining a team like Sky. And, and kind of having, you know, just, I think I start, started to go through the motions a little bit. And then that, that happened. You kind of take a step back and you're not able to ride a bike. You're not able to race a bike, spend time with the team, staff, riders. And probably it helped me a bit in my career, really, to kind of step back and see it from the outside and realize just how much of a fortunate position I, I was in. And maybe I didn't quite realize it. So I think since then it's given me maybe a bit of a kick at the bum and uh, maybe a, a new lease of life and just to just to realize how yeah realize how lucky I was and so that was and I and I did all the rehab by you know I was training three four times a day with the rehab um, through through different methods you know gym did a lot of swimming because it was you know non weight bearing and I did some weird and wacky things just experimenting and trying different things and that was yeah that was a tough six months but I think you know through all that rehab and and it's stuff I still have to do now rehab the rehabs will probably never finish from my whole career and I I still have pain in my leg you know to walk to ride most days it's the, I think the pain will never go and it's uh so it's a constant kind of um conveyor belt of of rehab and managing that leg um, so yeah, it was, yeah, it was a tough, tough six months, but you know, I think I got back to the same level I was pre-injury or even, or even a higher level. So, um, mm. it, it is what it is. How did you find your first race back after that? Actually, I was, I was flying. I don't know how it happened really. The first race back was Abu Dhabi tour and, um, I went into it nervous. Well, not nervous, just anxious, I guess, just not really knowing I could have started, I could have been a million miles off. I could have just got popped at the start and, you know, that, that wouldn't have been unexpected. So I turned up not really knowing what I would get out of myself. And yeah, actually, I think stage two and stage three were actually crosswind days. And I thought I was in the front, front group both days. And I remember thinking, well, I'm just cruising here, you know, and I, I somehow, I don't know how, I, I just straight away stepped back to um, to a good level. And that was... Yeah, that was my first race back and I left that race and and from then on it was like, right, okay, I don't need to be conservative here. I don't need to pick a easier program or try and look after myself. Just, right, that's it now. Throw myself in the deep end, just get back to it 100%. And, and that's kind of the approach, the approach I took. And stage one of that race, so my first day back, we said, um, I, I spoke to the, di the director at the race he said you know it's first day back what do you think and I said well we've got a sprinter here we got Halverson he said I said if I'm if I'm okay I'll give him everything I got and I'll, I'll try and lead him out and I'll try and be in the final and he said well it's first day back do you want to be you know just try and go through it no no as soon as it gets to the final just sit up relax and I said well no if, I, if I'm here to race I just want to get straight back to it race and and I was with Halverson until yeah, a K to go or two K to go. So I think I just, I just threw myself in and sink or swim, you know, and luckily, uh, luck, luckily I, I, yeah, came out, came out at a half decent level and kicked off from there. Yeah. Can you tell me about your experience this year at the Tour de France? 
Tour de France this year was obviously very different to previous years. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of the tour winning team in um, 15, 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So five, the past five years and on all the times I've ridden the Tour de France, um, I've been lucky enough to be part of part of the winning team. So that's obviously the, the, the big change is that we didn't win the race. Um, and then also, you know, it, we've had a core group of, of riders who have done the Tour de France year on year all together. You know, the likes of G, Wout, um, Stan Ard, and the, these guys we threw me obviously. Um, that's been like the core group for quite some time, and this that the squad changed quite a lot. So it was it was uh, quite a few new guys, a couple of guys, the first Tour de France. So it was it was it was quite a lot different. But in one aspect, it was you know it was it was different because you'd go and you'd try and win the race, and we failed. But at the same time, you know, with Egan, it's just, um, you know, he's still so young. He's got so many, he's got 10 Tour de France's ahead of him. So I think, you know, it's maybe, maybe it'll make him a bit more hungry as well. Not that he wasn't hungry now, but if you get success and then you go back the next year, you don't get success, maybe you get the, the eye of the tiger back. And, you know, he was in a lot of pain with his, with his back. And I really, it was pretty impressive to see the way he fought and battled through just to get as far as he did. I think a lot of, a lot of guys would have climbed off a lot earlier than he did. So I think, um, yeah, he should hold his head high really. So that, and it, so that was the biggest aspect is that, you know, for the last five years, you're racing for the win and pulled it off. And this year we didn't, I'd say was the biggest difference. Yeah. What do you do on rest days? On rest days, um, normally my family would come, my, my wife and son. Um, but because of the COVID restrictions, that wasn't possible this year. So it was um, yeah, pretty much a month away, away from them. So we just standard is wake up, you go on your bike, you probably go out quite late, half 10, 11, have a nice lazy morning, get back, bike to eat. Um, you, oh, on a ride, you'd probably stop for a coffee as well, just to... Like I said, just enjoy it. And then you, you, they pencil in a bit of a siesta, so you're just uninterrupted for a couple of hours. Uh, then you have probably some media to do. Um, for myself, not so much. For the big dogs, they're quite busy. And then massage, a bit of physio if, if you need it. I'm, I'm not so into that. And uh, dinner and bed. So it's, it's pretty much, for me, the more time you can spend in the bed, the better. Just it's nice just to switch off mentally and physically. It's just it's quite you know, people will see see the Tour de France and see what you do on the bike, but off the bike and after the stages, there's a lot of time on the bus, transfers, just the intensity of the race itself. There's a lot of fans, spectators, media. So actually like your brain's quite fried. It's mentally, it's it's a slog as well. So it's nice just for a day just to get in a hotel room, lay down and, and try and not do much else, really. <laughs> How do you fuel so much riding? Fuel? Yeah. Well, I'm a, I just eat my weight in pasta. I, I, I'm one of the big eaters in the team. I am. I, um, I can tuck it away. So for me, it's, well, I pretty much have pasta for breakfast which isn't so appetizing after 15 or 15 days or whatever, but mm. yeah, plate of pasta and then pasta post-stage pasta dinner. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pasta king. And, um, I think it's just, it's like, um, it's like a car. The more, the more miles you do, the more petrol you got to put in. So it's a simple, mm. it's quite a simple equation, really. The more, miles you do the more hours you do on the bike the more food you have to eat and it's um it's yeah it's exactly the same with the car the more more you use it the more petrol you got to put in so in a race like that you know if, if you're not putting that petrol in, if you're not putting that carbohydrate source that that food that fuel into the body then it's not going to go so it's uh yeah you gotta you, you gotta go big on the on the food front yeah i definitely love a good bit of pasta <laughs> great think- isn't it 
I don't think you can ever have too much pasta. <laughs> What's your favourite? Pasta with what? I like um, pesto and tomato and just cheese. I like any pasta, really. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat pasta pesto, can you? Simple but effective. <laughs> How has your training and race plans been affected this year? Racing drastically. Uh, obviously, with yeah, the whole calendar, the whole season has been flipped on its head. The races have just been, you know, kind of put in if and where as possible. So racing wise, massively, um, you know, it's just a completely new calendar. You know, usually now the season would be over, and I still got, you know, a couple of monuments to do, and the Giro's just started, and the Vuelta is yet to have even started. So it's, you know, it, racing massively, but training, not so much because I was never in a country in a position where I I was restricted to only ride a turbo i could always ride outdoors um wherever i was so it wasn't so bad and and during lockdown i i took my foot off the gas quite a bit and you know just st stayed fit kept riding but but never went crazy so yeah training not so much but racing has just been completely flipped on its head yeah have you been doing a lot of zwift i when i what did I do in lockdown? I did I did two big rides on Zwift in lockdown. I did um, Geraint Thomas did three days on the turbo with the NHS. So I did one day with him on that. Not crazy enough to do the three, but I did one day with him. And then I did um, the Everest Challenge with uh, with Mark Cavendish. We did we did that on Zwift as well. So that was a similar length in time. I think it was I think that was around it was 10, 11 hours something like that. So I did two big rides in lockdown. But it's a tool that I use quite regularly on a maybe on a recovery day if I'm just doing an hour. Sometimes it's easier and more time efficient just to jump on the turbo. So no, I still do use it time to time. Yeah. Are you any closer to your Tron bike now? <laughs> <laughs> I still got a bit of work to do on that. I think I'm around thirty thousand altitude meters, so I got about twenty more to go. But uh, one day, one day. What are your plans for the rest of the year? So the rest of the year, uh, I've got three more races. I've got ghent Wevelgem, which is Sunday. I've got a Tour of Flanders and I've got Paris-Roubaix. So just three races, but three very big ones, three big dogs. So um, just try and get the most out of all of them. Take the opportunity, um, race hard and, and see what I can do in them. Um, and then, yeah, enjoy a, enjoy a month off. Pretty much November will be, won't even look at a bike. And then get back, get back to it in December, which is, you know, because the racing's been knocked back and everything's later, everything's been later, then everything kind of gets knocked back a bit. And then enjoy a good Christmas. And then I've got a, my wife's pregnant, so she's due at the end of December, early January. So I've got that to look forward to as well, so exciting few months ahead congratulations i didn't realize thank you very much got another boy on the way oh wow yeah gonna be a madhouse <laughs> when you're not racing do you follow the races <sighs> half and half i think if if i've got one of the if i got a good mate racing i'll keep an eye on the racing watch it if, I, if i'm home and i've got nothing to do I'll, I'll stick it on but i won't make an effort to be home for it or follow it you know super closely um i think it's quite nice just to switch off from it a little bit when you're not racing if you're following all the other races super close and intensely then it's you know you, you don't really get out of that bubble and you're constantly thinking you know cycling 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 it's nice to kind of step away from it and and switch off from you know bikes for a bit so but it but but yeah if, if a good friend is racing you know one of the my good mates then i'll, I'll keep a close eye and, and see how they're getting on yeah. So I watched Lombardia this year and saw Remco Evenpol um go over the bridge and I and I couldn't believe it happened. What was your first reaction when you saw it? My first reaction was just fear, I guess. Um and I I wasn't watching it on TV but I one of one of the guys messaged me and said, "Wow, did you see that crash?" And I, I said, "No." So I went online and you can see it pretty quickly on online on social media and yeah, your first reaction is just fear. Like, you know, 
what what if you're racing a bike and you crash like that, you know, worst case scenario, we all know what the worst case scenario is, is yeah. that someone dies and that, that, and that's, it's always possible every time you race your bike and, you know, you're going down them to sense that it's always a possibility for every rider. So the first, and that, and this was just after, um, Jakobsen's crash in tour of Poland. And I was there and, and seen that as well. So that the, the first, reaction was just pure fear and just waiting for news to hope hope he's okay and then as soon as you see him moving and you know he, he got he got lifted at the bank when and you could see he was awake and moving then it's just a case of how bad is he and you just got to wait and be patient and wait for the team to you know put out a statement but it's just yeah i mean and you and you you feel for his family and I don't know if he's got a girlfriend or wife or whatever, but you feel for his parents, his family. I think if, you know, now I've got a son, if I was to what, if he was to do a professional sport and I had to sit, sit at home watching on TV whilst he's, he's led down an embankment and you don't know if he's okay or not. I think you, you think of them as well. I think sometimes cycling camera can stay too long on someone who's crashed you know, it's 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 horrible to watch, and even if you know, as a as a colleague, just to see someone down there like that, you don't you don't have to see it, do you? And um, yeah, so I guess as yes, from a personal point of view, it's just fear and praying that that person's all right. And then I I always think of the family as well because if that was you know I know if that was me, my parents had to had to watch whilst I was led on the floor, trying you know trying to suss out if he's moving or not. It's you know it's a horrible situation to be in, so. I guess just fear and yeah, crossing your fingers that whoever it is is okay. Yeah, I think all of our family watched it on Eurosport, and then when it actually happened, um, the thing that they like the um, Italian company they kept replaying it, and Eurosport yeah. didn't want them to be replaying it, so they were like trying to um, get like different camera images on because they. Because obviously it was such a horrible thing, but I think we were so shocked that he was so lucky that he only broke his pelvis. He is so lucky, yeah. I think you could do that a hundred times, and ninety-nine would be worse than a broken pelvis. So yeah, lucky boy. But like you say, yeah, I think it's happened a few times now where there's been a nasty crash, and they they keep going back to it and showing replays, and mm. it's not really necessary, is it? Yeah. Do you sometimes ride races and think that some of the stuff is a bit sketchy? Yeah, most races I do, I think. <laughs> There's always... But you know what you're signing up for. I think when you... You know, you, you it's, it's... Essentially, it's a job, and with that does come an element of risk. And if you're not prepared to take that element of risk, then it's not a job for you. And whether you're... Whatever type of rider you are, it's there's always that element of risk that things can always go wrong and you know some races more than others some races have better roads some races have worse roads some races have more or countries have more street furniture which is a big problem some have less so of course some yeah some races are, you know are on the limit are pretty uh, chaotic but at the same time you know you, you know what you signed up for and when you're in a, certain countries you know what to expect and you know racing in holland and belgium there's a lot of street furniture the weather isn't always great there's cobblestones and things like that so you know when, when you race in them countries you know you're in for a hectic day and you just got to kind of accept it mm. as i said earlier i really enjoy listening to your podcast and i like how you're so honest with your opinions do you ever get in trouble for things that you say on the podcast on the podcast, no, not through anyone who um, I don't know can have any influence. There's al there's always someone on online or social media will give you a bit of a beating, but you just ignore it. Um, and I guess no, I just think you know social media was invented for giving people um, to express themselves and to show a bit of character and to show who you are. And as time goes on, it's just been if anyone says anything at all 
controversial. It gets shot down and that element of what it was originally invented for is gone because mm. you almost can't have a laugh anymore or or take take the mickey out of someone because someone might perceive it in a different light or so I think that's a bit of a shame. We've got to tone tone all that down a bit and, and and toe the line on that front. But in terms of the podcast, no, I think you know, me and G just try and sit down and have a conversation as if we were sat down having a coffee or, or having a pint in the pub and just try and keep it as if, you know, genuine, real life conversation and if people want to listen, great. If it offends them, don't listen. Or that's essentially, you know, we it, it is what it is. I think, um, you know, more people, it's got quite a, it's, it's taken off quite well. We thought we started out just a bit of fun, just at the Tour de France one year and it's kind of taken off. So it's something we'll continue to do hopefully. But um, yeah, I think if people don't like it, then it's their choice to whether they want to listen or not, isn't it? Mm. I listened to your first episode and I loved how you were just joking about how there are only going to be like two listeners and now it's such <laughs> a big podcast. Well, yours will take off after after this one now. You go viral. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite race you've ever done? Favourite race I've ever done was Tour of Britain 2012 because... So Brad had just won the Tour de France and it was basically a victory lap for him. Uh, Cav was there he was world champion um, I was Neo Pro so for me I was surrounded by these superstars uh, I think we won three or four stages so the race itself was super successful um, you know these guys just been to the Tour de France and um, you know wiped the floor with it so it was relaxed from them and you know we <laughs> it was always after a race we'd have like rice and a can of tuna or something but that race we'd be driving along the M4 and we'd see a service station we'd say oh, slacky bus driver pull over here and we'd you know we'd all get off the bus and go into M&S and get these buckets of uh, chocolates and <laughs> Cav would come out with like six pasties and <laughs> Jeff and McDonald's it was just it was just it was just good fun you know and everyone was super relaxed and it was just yeah and, and, and it was relaxing we were successful so we won on both fronts yeah sounds really cool Where's yeah, your favourite place to ride for fun? Can't beat back home. So for me, that's, yeah, Cardiff, Wales. And I think, you know, it's one of the first rides, like I said, I went out with my, my parents and my brother. And I think it's still one of the nicest rides I can do is to, you know, go out with my parents or go with my brother and just do a couple of hours in the lanes, stop at the calf, maybe have some lunch or something. They're still probably one of the most enjoyable rides I can do not partly because of the company and partly because of the roads but I think uh, it's a special thing to be able to do if you can ride you know have a great relationship with with your parents like I still have so I think that's probably one of the most enjoyable rides I can do. Mm. I know you rode Strada Bianchi for the first time this year are there any races that you haven't done yet but you'd like to do? Well, that was always one I said I hadn't done and I really wanted to do. And I went there this year and I just got battered, basically. I was, I was, it was probably one of the worst races I've ever done. I was, uh, I was out the race around halfway through the race. So I really wanted to do it and now I never want to go back. So um, another race I want to do. Not really. I think I've ticked off most of them, really. I've never done Terreno and I've never done the Giro because I'm always on Paris-Nice Tour de France program normally. But uh, but still, I, I'm happy. I, mean, I guess, I guess it would be nice to do the Giro one year. It would be, be nice you know, to finish your career, having at least experienced all three Grand Tours. Um, yeah. Yeah. Who's your favourite current rider? Um, favourite in terms of what? The way they ride or, or like a friend? So the way they ride. Way they ride. I think at the moment it's hard to look past Philippe, really. Um, I mean, the guy just oozes class, doesn't he? The way he... It's not just the fact he wins the race, it's the way he goes about winning the race. Um, he's just grabs the ball by the horns and he's he's not afraid to attack from far out. He's not afraid, whether it's flat or hilly or mountain, he can 
there's no real terrain he can't win on. Um, and he's a nice guy to go along with it. You know, he'll, he'll always say hello and have a quick chat. And I think at the moment, you know, for him to become world champion was the biggest winner is the sport. I think the sport, you know, he'll, he'll do the stripes proud. Um, I think at the moment he's, you know, one of the, one of the biggest faces and names in the sport and what he can do on a bike is just uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. We were all really excited when he won the world. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, that was an impressive ride. Who's your favorite rider of all time? Um, Who's my favorite rider? Probably Tom Boonen. Um, and obviously he's a rider who I was lucky enough to race with in the Peloton against. Um, and another guy who just oozed class. He was, you know, what he did in his career, what he achieved his Palmares speaks for itself. Um, and then also off the bike. And, you know, whenever you, I was, even as a Neo pro, you know, he's, he'd say hello to you. He wouldn't look down on you because you were a younger lad who hadn't achieved anything. He was... You know, it's a nice guy and another guy who who's class. Um, and, and just, you know, the way he won races is similar to how I spoke highly of Philippe before. He, he, you know, he won Roubaix, attacking 50, 60k to go. And, of course, it's a nice thought to be able to do that. But obviously, you've got to have the legs. But even, you know, he's a fast finisher. He could have won from a group and a sprint. But, no, he attacks with 50, 60k to go. And just... Um, yeah, a, a character as well. So I'd say probably Tomica. How many bikes do you have and do you get to keep them all? I reckon I probably have 15 bikes maybe. With the... <laughs> well, what do you have? Hang on. Race bike, spare race bike one, spare race bike two. Two training bikes. TT bike at home race TT bike, spare race TT bike. Then you have cobble bikes, four cobble bikes, mountain bike, e-bike, 14 bikes. There we go. Um, But no, you don't get to keep them. At the end of the year, the team, uh, they they all go back to the team. The team, I think, sells them on. I don't know know what they do with them, actually. I think they sell most of them on to... um, they got a bit of a VIP list, so they sell most of them on. And uh, and you get a load more new ones the next year. Has there ever been one that you've really wanted to keep? Uh, me, no, pers- no, personally, because I never I never had a like a national championships bike or something that I achieved an amazing thing on. Like if like if I won or just for example, if I won Roubaix on a bike, I I wouldn't even offer to give it back or just I just take it home you know something like something special like that um but I know guys who have had you know world championships bike or national championships bikes and I think yeah they get to keep them and that's kind of a uh, something a bit special mm. yeah next year is hopefully an Olympic year what are your plans for 2021 in terms of the Olympics I think it's uh I'll probably be at home with a beer watching it on TV. I don't see myself being selected for that. Uh, it's a it's a real tough course. I think it's a bit uh, bit tough for me. Um, but in terms of next year, I mean, it would be good to go back to the tour and stamp our authority back down on that and take the crown back, let them enjoy it for a year and get it back. That would be nice. But um, mm. obviously we've got G and Bernal. Um, so we'll see how they... And Carapaz, so we we'll see, you know, we, it hasn't even been spoken about, but we'll see how it, you know, how it's all going to build into next year in the Tour de France. And and then you've got the classics, obviously. Uh, there are races I enjoy, so we'll go into them and, and give it my all in them as well. What advice would you give to young riders? Enjoy it. If, if you're not enjoying it, it only gets harder. It only gets harder. So I think... From day one, since I got on a bike, I enjoyed it. And then as I went on, it's the sport I fell in love with. And it's not just the, the on-bike stuff I, I, I fell in love with. It's the, the t- being in a team, the camaraderie, the 
you know, you got to, yeah, just, just, and it's not a piece of advice I'd give to a young rider. I give to any rider is just never stop enjoying it. And if you're not enjoying it, change something about it. So you do enjoy it. And the other piece of advice, advice, advice I give is, um, don't get too wrapped up in, in all the numbers and the science, just try and keep it basic. Like get the basics right before, before you move on to, to other things. And I think, you know, it, it can get too intense with that type of things. And I think the most important thing is just to get back to basics and, and enjoy riding your bike and get on the club runs and grassroots cycling as opposed to, um, you know, staring at a power meter or whatever, just, uh, but, but number one, enjoy it. Definitely. That's really good advice. You've got five minutes before the start of a race. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? Oh, oh, uh, for me, it would probably be some kind of dance music or something, Tiesto or um, Hardwell or something like that. So quite, quite full on. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining me today, Luke. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. A day after I spoke to Luke, they announced that Paru Bay was cancelled this year. I know that a lot of riders will be disappointed as they were building towards this race. Thank you again to Luke for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can check out our Instagram at cycling.talk.podcast and you can find our podcast on Spotify, Acast or via my website. See you on the bike.